Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman, and I am here with my friend and trusty producer in person for the first time in a while. I know. It feels so good to be home. Max Kerman. Max, what's going on? Not much. Before we start the show, though, I want to encourage all of our listeners to subscribe to the show on iTunes and to leave a rating in the comments because that actually makes a huge difference. So if you can do that and tell your friends about the show... It makes a huge difference on our end, and we really, really appreciate it. So thank you. It's true. Uh, today on the show, we have Tom Chaplin, uh, lead singer of Keen. Yes, yes. Very interesting interview. We'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, but first, Max, the last time I saw you was at about midnight, <laughs> just after you'd rocked uh, Cops Coliseum in Hamilton to what? Thousands and thousands of people in a sold-out arena. It was wild. 10,000 people in Hamilton. And uh, it, was, it was our biggest show of the tour, of our morning report tour. And uh, it was an awesome, awesome day. There's like, it's, we've been getting so many like nice uh, notes from people that have come to the show and just saying congratulations. And there's like no way to be like, ah, shucks about it or like, oh, we got lucky or something. It was just like, yeah, it was the fucking best. It was so cool. It was yeah. like, yep. It was like just as, you know, what you sort of dream of like a, your first sort of big show like that uh, to end up like. And, uh, so yeah, if anyone who's listening was at the show, thank you very much for coming. Yeah, man. It was a great night. And yeah, anyway, you and Danica were, uh, looked like you guys were having a good night. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So the, basically we were taking a vacation, sort of our official honeymoon, uh, to Hawaii. And it just worked out like essentially we knew that show was coming up, which Dan and I really wanted to go to. And we also had a wedding for our friend, Vanessa and Scott, uh, that's actually this weekend. Mm -hmm. So we knew there was kind of a window between those two events where we could maybe jet off and, and get some sun. Anyway, we booked our flight for the first thing Saturday morning. Your show was the Friday night. Yeah. So we knew it would be a bit of a, a tall order to, uh, you know, go to your show, have a few drinkies, go home, be responsible, get up and then, you know, did take you pack before the show? Like, is everything ready to go? Or did you drunkenly pack stuff? Oh, you know me i love to prep no i we, neither of us packed actually really? well we worked friday so oh, we came like right from toronto right to the show basically right to the show oh man joined that must up have been with a, everyone oh that would have stressed me out so i'm like you know what all my friends are here max is accomplishing all these great things him the boys i'm like it's gonna be a fun night so i knew i was gonna have some drinks but i was yeah. like because we're leaving so early i'm gonna take it easy Danica, who I thought out of the two of us is the responsible one, decided to go whole hog. She just loves- She was on fire when I saw her. She loves herself some Arkells. You know, the tunes were playing. She's like, I'll have another glass of wine. I'm like, okay, she's having fun. I'm going to keep drinking my beers. So how was the travel? I haven't heard anything about the trip. So tell me about Hawaii. Okay. So first things first, Danica uh, enjoyed your show a little too much. So we wake up in the morning, realize we haven't packed. Okay. I mean, I knew I hadn't, but I, I've lived like this for a long time. Yeah. So I'm like, I got it easy. Like as, as long as there's an H&M there, I can just go get some socks and underwear and I'm good to go. I'm golden. Yeah. I literally, it takes me two minutes to go to the drawer. I'll take that, 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 throw it in the thing, go. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to die. Oh my God. We only have half an hour before we have to go to the airport. She's like freaking, doesn't pack half her things. Oh, okay. The travel, she was like, this is a nightmare. Uh, but it's all because she had such a great time. Yeah, good. So Hawaii. Hawaii. It was amazing. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, man. It was like 10 days in the sun. It was, we were in Maui. Uh, we went to Kauai. Um, we stayed in this little town called Kapa in Kauai. We basically drove to all the different beaches. Did you rent a car? We did. Nice. We got a convertible, like, you Ooh, know, those nice. asshole tourists that are driving around. Do it. I know. It was awesome. Uh, I, I loved it. And I like every, t it, the good thing about this vacation is that every moment I was just so like, 
appreciative and like grateful because I feel like leading up to it, like we've all been so busy and I was like, I just need a break. And I haven't had like, I guess like a time off a vacation where you'd like read a book in the sand in a few years. Like even when the champagne boys go on like a trip together, that's not really like a break. It's like, you're kind of going like full on hundred percent. That's what I'm saying. Like I've been away in the last couple of years, but it's always a bachelor trip where you're basically just destroying your body and your mind. You do not take a break from drinking. You go full force. And also family stuff is, is great and deeply rewarding in its own way. But it's also, you, you, you have to be kind of on whether it's like you're going to see the in-laws or going you're to see engaging. your family. Yeah. But if it's just your boo, you know, oh, you man. kind of turn it off a little bit. And honestly, it's, it's, it's been years since like I've had a thing where it was like, we just, oh, let's drive to that beach and hang out here for three hours. And I'm like reading a book and you don't have to be anywhere and you're eating great food. What and all do those, you read? I was reading, I'm reading this book called The Hike by Drew McGarry. I also have a, a, a biography on the kids in the hall. Oh, nice. Um, it's called, this is a book about the kids in the hall. And, uh, so it was just really nice to like read. And while I was away, as anyone that listens know, I'm a huge Raptors fan and they traded for Serge Ibaka, which I would loved. I thought oh, it was yeah. a great deal. Nice. I started jumping around the hotel room and Danica's like, what is going on? And I was like, I tried to explain it all to her, but you know, if you don't know, you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Serge who? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, it was, it was like all those things people say about vacations. Uh, it was, it recharged the batteries. It was amazing. Uh, it was a good time. That's fucking great. I did manage to get drunk though. Uh, a couple times. <laughs> You know, because like when you travel with your partner, it's like uh, you're doing like fun, like nice kind of like, oh, we'll go for dinner and have like a glass of wine. But you're not like drinking like if it's like me and you are on a vacation. So this one day we go to um, a catamaran and uh, because we're deciding we're going to go see the Napoli coast. uh, And, you know, there might be some whales out there, whatever. But this catamaran has like an open bar afternoon. So it's like you get there in the morning, you eat some breakfast and the guys like doing the whole tour and all this business. And then they like lunch is ready and they open the bar, but you've been in the sun all day and you're out on the water and you feel like you're in like a Duran Duran video or something. So you start having a few drinks and a few turns into a couple more. And then we get, uh, we leave, we have a great time. Um, but Danica's feeling a little bit sick from the boat. She's been out in the sun all day. The boat's been rocking. Uh, so anyway, we go back to the, the hotel and she's like, babe, I'm like wiped. I've been in the sun all day. I'm just going to like pass out. I'm like, oh, can I get you anything? She's like, no, 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 I'm good. And she passes it like in her bathing suit, just falls asleep. Now it's five hours behind in Hawaii. It's Saturday night, which is the night of the NBA skills competition, the dunk Uh, contest, three point shooting. So I throw on the TV. It's only like four o'clock in Hawaii. And literally this all-star Saturday night is starting. So good. I got a fridge full of beer. I've already got like, you know, a catamaran buzz going. So I'm like, don't mind if I do. So Danica's snoring. I crack a beer. (laughs) By the time the dunk contest ends, it's only seven o'clock in Hawaii or something like that. So I'm like, I look around. I'm like, babe, are you like, do you want me to get you anything? Although it was probably a little more sloppy. I was going to say, she's like, she's like, no, 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 no. I'm good. And I'm like, okay, okay. I'm out of beer now. So I decided to go to the old uh, resort bar. Yeah. Meet some of the locals. Meet some of the locals. I meet this couple from Michigan. Great people. (laughs) Uh, This woman starts showing me their daughter got married. She's showing me photos. I'm like, oh, I'm from Canada. We're all becoming friends. He's like, you're from Canada. He's like, what what are you drinking? And I'm like, oh, I'm just having like a Coors Light or whatever. He's like, all right. He's like, what kind of shot do you want? His wife's like, oh, shots. I don't know. And I'm like, oh, I, you know, please, you don't need to buy me. He's like, get a shot. I'm like, all right. (laughs) You can tell he's just looking for another dude guy to drink. He was looking for a guy like me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So he was like, he's like, oh, what do you drink? I'm like, I'll drink anything. He's like, how do you feel about tequila? I'm like, all right, let's do it. 
fired up. Yeah. So now we're drinking. And now the whole time beside the bar is kind of like this nice kind of patio area where there's all these like, you know, people that are staying at the resort and like uh, tourists and whatnot. And there's these two guys like playing acoustic guitars. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> So they're playing away and they're doing, you know, all the covers that you think they would do. And I'm sitting at the bar with this couple and we're all talking or whatever. And we start talking about our lives. She's telling me what they do. Eventually comes up like, oh, you know, I used to be in a band. We tour all that sort of thing. She's like, oh, like, what did you do in the band? I'm like, oh, that band I like sang and whatnot. So when these guys take a break, uh, they come over to the bar, right? The one guy. And she's like, this guy sings. He (laughs) should do a song. And now this is how I'm remembering it. What really probably happened is it's like, I could be up there doing a song. It's like, I can sing. So she kind of sets it up and dude's like, oh, like you sing. Well, did you know, like you, what do you do? Do you want to get up and do a song? And I'm like, I'd do a song if you're going to let me do a song. (laughs) Oh, Mike, you can't turn down. Oh, Mike, you can't say no. Uh, it's, yeah, because she's like, oh, do you play anymore? And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't. Like, maybe if I get really drunk, I annoy my friends by sitting at a piano and you know, playing some Oasis or Beatles. So she convinced this guy to let me go up and do a song. I wasn't resisting too hard, Maxi Boy. I'm on vacation. So uh, I decided. It's literally the night of your dreams, by the way. Yeah. It's just like watching NBA for four hours, drinking beer. And then anyway, this happening, carry on. It's like describing a fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I go up and uh, his dude is there, his partner's other guitar guy. And now just before I'd left, maybe two days before I'd left on this vacation, I was flipping through the movie channel and I came across a Bruce Springsteen doc. Uh, uh, I think he is the album called The River and he was going yeah. track by track through the river. Yeah. So he's sitting there with like his acoustic. He's like, oh yeah, he's like, I didn't know this would be like the biggest hit on the album. And he starts doing Hungry Heart and his acoustic. Uh, he's like, he kind of running through. He's like, you know, and he does it. And I was like, in my head, I was like, oh, that sounds really nice acoustic. So it had been in my head anyway from like a week before so i go up and i say to the guy i'm like hey you uh you know hungry heart you know to the other guitar yeah. player and he just kind of like nods at me like sure yeah whatever again max i'm pretty drunk i've been <laughs> drinking since like noon in the catamaran it is now like 7 30 yeah. <laughs> uh and the restaurant area like this resort area is pretty packed uh and the minute i sat down in the chair with the other guy there's kind of like these tall stools yeah. i immediately was like Oh shit. In my mind, I'm actually more drunk than I thought I was. <laughs> it's like the different levels screwed you. Oh my God. I'm like, I'm like, what was I thinking? And I'm like, okay, too much time's passed. Start playing something. So I know the four chords of hungry heart. So I start playing them and, uh, I'm going, shit. What's the first verse? Got a wife and kids. Yes. But I'm like, I'm just playing. I've just played the car- chords now for two bars and I haven't said anything. I'm, oh, I'm like, how's everybody doing or whatever. And everybody like cheers. The guy beside me starts kind of like noodling on the guitar, doing like a little solo. And I'm like, wicked. This is giving me time to remember that lyric. I'm like, come to me, come to me, come to me. <laughs> Wife and kids in Baltimore, Jack. So I get it. I get through the first verse. Oh, good. Baltimore, Jack. Yeah. Went over, I never came back. Like I really don't know where it's flowing. Took a wrong turn and I just kept going. Now I'm into the chorus, right? Everybody's got a hungry heart. I'm going or whatever. The minute I get to that chorus, I've got like my, my kick. People are, are enjoying it. I haven't embarrassed myself too much. And by the way, it's probably a lot more sloppy in reality than how I remember yeah, but this it. version's way better. So <laughs> I end up uh, getting out of the chorus there's no way I can remember any of the other verses. And I'm like, how do you get out of this gracefully where they know you're just a random guy and that Uh you need to get out of this now. So as I'm playing and dudes like now just kind of like noodling along, soloing, like kind of like accompanying me, I just said, thank you everybody. My name is Mike. I'm from Canada and I'm very drunk. uh, So I'm going to go now. Good night. Good night. Yeah. And they all clapped. And then that dude, like the second guitarist kept playing the tune. And then I was able to hand over the acoustic, uh, the, the, the walk off with the music, the walk off. That's perfect. I waved. Uh, and then I went back to the bar and I would, and then the guy lined up more shots. Oh man. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you came up victorious though. I was worried you're going to fall on the chair or something. Maybe. 
<laughs> but it, 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 maybe I, like, I like this version of the story way better. <laughs> so yeah, that was really fun. And, and obviously Valentine's day happened while we were there and we did like an amazing uh, picnic on the beach for Valentine's day as the sun was like setting. Damn. So here's a question. Hit me. When you're thinking about your next vacation, yeah. do you, are you like, this is the way I want to do it? Or are you going, Oh, I'm a little, little thirsty for some champagne boys, uh, action. <sighs> That's a great question. I didn't realize, because it had been so long, how much I would enjoy such an extended amount of time of just kind of like relaxing mm-hmm. and not like having to drink every shot and it's like, you know, this never-ending party. Like, I loved the pace of just like hanging out at the beach, reading a book, not worrying about where you had to be. And like the scenery was amazing. So you ask, Oh, like what's the next vacation? It's like, listen, we've got a bachelor trip coming up where we're going to be hanging out with all the guys. And I look forward to that trip for sure. Cause they're the funnest and you get the craziest stories. But I also really look forward to the next trip where her and I go and just eat great food and you work at your own pace and you don't care if you yeah, find you're a bar adult and you're reading a book and you're taking it and, and you're, and you're giving yourself a real rest too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I feel like you can get, get into a groove pretty quickly, like as long as it's a fun thing. So it's like when you're out with, with your friends, you can get in a groove of like, we're going out every night and doing it. Obviously you need a break at some point, but also it's like when you're kind of doing something with like more one-on-one or something, that's a little more laid back. You can get into that groove and you're like, Oh, I, this is awesome as well. No offense, champagne boys. No offense. I mean, a lot of flack for this on in the group. Yeah. Actually, speaking of that, you, you got some flack. Let's get back. So Max did an interview. Where'd you do an interview? Max? So we were in Halifax and we were doing a CTV news hit. And the reporter happened to be a big Arkells fan. She's from Ontario. And um, Nick was with us. Nick, it was just Nick and I doing the interview. And Nick is, he participates in the Champagne Boys activities more than anybody, but he doesn't like the name Champagne Boys. I think for a good reason, he, I think, assumes that it's like too fratty or it's like, he doesn't like the connotation of the of the idea of Champagne Boys, <laughs> at least in his head. So anyway, so he doesn't like to even mutter the name Champagne Boys, despite the fact that he does lots of Champagne Boys things. He's in the group. He's in he the group. He attends all the events. He's at more events than me. So anyway. As if we have events. <laughs> By the way, events are like chicken wing night on Mondays at the Pheasant Plucker. It's like literally yesterday. <laughs> uh, so then... This reporter who is a big fan of the band, she was like, oh, so, you know, this album, you talk a lot about, like, personal experiences and going on trips with the Champagne Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, my face kind of was like, oh, God, Nick's going to hate this because, like, now this reporter is talking about, in Halifax, like, talking about the Champagne Boys. And so my face just sort of goes, well. And I like that she also called it the Champagne Brothers. Yeah, yeah she kind of gets the name wrong. <laughs> Nick feels the question, but kind of, like, ducks the Champagne Boys angle, Champagne Brothers angle of it all. And then... Somehow, like, I think the nut caught wind of this interview and posted it in the group and started chastising me for being ashamed of my Champagne Boys heritage. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was doing tisk tisk, and, and I just sort of ignored it all. But, uh, but word is getting out all across the country. So now you know if you're listening, uh, reporters or aspiring reporters. Yeah. Only talk with the Champagne Boys on the podcast, not at Arkell's interviews. Yeah. Though I secretly loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, today on the show, we have Tom Chaplin. Yep. Brit, charming, revealing. Very, uh, yeah, he was very open in this interview. I was, uh, he didn't hold back on a lot. I felt like he was very uh, open. You know what's kind of interesting? And this is just an observation I'm making between the Canadian music scene versus the Brits. Because we just toured with Frank Turner, who's a Brit, and also very much an open book in a lot of ways in terms of like his past and like what he's been through. 
I feel like Brits are just like way more explicit about talking about like their demons mm-hmm. and like their like drug use and just like just like and they they more ascribe to that like classic version of like living that rock star life. Whereas Canadians don't really like Canadian rock bands like don't really get into that stuff. Maybe like at least amongst my peers and we're like roughly the same age. It's like no one's really describing or like getting into detail about that part of their life. But it feels like felt like he was like pretty, pretty open about everything he's been through. He was. And it's like the other thing is like Keen was a huge band. Yeah. Literally like on par with Coldplay in the early 2000s. And he talks a lot about uh, the creative process with Keen. Uh, his solo record now that he has out and uh, yeah just sort of his life and his perspective on things well let's let's listen to it let's get to it uh, so you came from Montreal did, yes. did you drive in last night or this morning uh, we were on a tour bus so yes we were overnighting it nice and then yeah six th- I, was, I had some breakfast TV stuff this morning <laughs> Um, did you have to perform or did just talking? No, just talking. But you did, you know, you've got to be peppy for those things. Yeah. And it's not, it's hard to get up that early and sort of be energetic. I feel yeah. like, I mean, even just, unless you kind of entirely reset your kind of body clock, which is, <laughs> I guess is what they do. Right. Those yeah. people. So they sort of, I mean, cause I've got a small child at home. She's she's my daughter. <laughs> it's not a random child. <laughs> yeah, she's one of one I've collected. Um, and you know, I have found, particularly as she's getting older, that I have to go to bed at sort of half past eight, yeah, in order to guarantee myself a good eight eight nine hours of sleep before she wakes up and is straight up and running. Yeah, you, you have know. to sh- like shift the, the the way you operate completely yeah. in order to get on her schedule. Absolutely. But then I come out on the road and it's a, and it's an entirely different vibe. Yeah. You know, everyone else is like laying in for hours. Was there any thought of bringing the family on the road? Nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, shit. So my daughter's nearly three, but you know, so the time zone just alone, that would be hell on earth. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine. deal with that. But my wife also, she just, you know, I think she just feels like a bit of a spare part. Sure. If she comes out on the road. And, um, well, I think that's kind of what people don't realize is it's yeah. work, man. Yeah. It's not just like the road seems fun and, you know, the way you sort of fantasize it and yeah. people that aren't on the road. But when you get yeah. out there, it's a grind. Yeah. I think it can be. Yeah. You know, I mean, I personally, I, I really enjoy it. But I wouldn't want anyone tagging along, you know, playing sort of second fiddle to me. And, you know, I, I just think and that. And that's been her experience in the past. Maybe when you kind of, you know, you're playing stadiums or something and you sure. can fly and fly out. And yeah, like if you're U2, <laughs> you know, you bring the whole yeah. the whole team. Yeah, that might be a bit different. Um, I kind of wanted to start and go back a bit. We, on this podcast, we like to get into the sort of minutiae of how artists do their work and how they sort yeah. of came to get into the business um, of creation. And I guess, I mean, I want to start like, what did your parents do? They were teachers. Oh, okay. Yeah, my, in fact, my dad ran a school... Um, it was like a little private school um, in the southeast of England. And in fact, my mum's dad had run it before he did. So so it was kind of a family, family. thing. Yeah. And um, but it was it was kind of like Hogwarts. You know, it was it was a very old fashioned. It was a big kind of country house in the middle of this kind of beautiful parkland. So it was a really quite a magical place to, to grow up. Yeah. And yeah. it was like a tight knit community, like sort of. Yes, it was. Um, and 
you know, I, yeah. And the, the, yeah, a lot of teachers who'd been there for a long time. It was a very kind of highly in-demand school in those days. Like, ah. you know, a lot of people wanted to send their kids there just because it had this kind of very nurturing, very positive atmosphere to it. So, um, yeah, it was a very, it was a very kind of, uh, I suppose it is this kind of environment that encouraged a kind of, creative or imaginative mind yeah did well, that's what i was going to say did it was there a focus on the arts i mean is music um or performing something that you i guess from a young age had a focus on or a I goal th- i think i did yeah i think i yeah i can remember i mean i've got lots of tapes of me you know singing crazy songs as a kid like just sort of press and record on the cassette and on the cassette yeah yeah and then off you go i had a little casio keyboard um, you know, that was a couple of feet long, you know, <laughs> just talking nonsense into that. But very quickly I was, you know, I was in school plays, you know, musicals and yeah. uh, performing in the choir. And it was, I think it was clear that that seemed, certainly I sort of gravitated towards that as my kind of primary form of self-expression, you know, was singing. Well, it's interesting, singing, but you also mentioned school plays. Was there ever a thought to acting for you? <laughs> Um, I don't think so. No. I, yeah. It's a good question. I mean, I did carry it on when I was at my secondary school, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I, to be honest with you, I'm not sure I got the look for an actor. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's always a funny thing too because it's like if you you had a sort of a predilection for music, then maybe you drift toward that. Yeah. But it seems like it's something that maybe you considered for a second, like maybe I want to carry on with acting or something that I enjoy. Yeah. yeah, I I don't know what... I think the thing was I got to like 14, 15 and writing songs became just... That became everything to me. Writing yeah. songs and, you know, we that's when Keen sort of began, or at least when I was invited to join Keen. The other guys were <laughs> older than me, so it was kind of, you know, do you want to come and join our band? And um, so, so I was kind of sucked into that big time and I didn't really, I didn't actually really think about much else other than, I want to have a record deal and I want to make albums and travel the world. And That's the plan. That's the plan. There was no backup plan at that point. Not really, no. No, I mean, I went to university for a year mm-hmm. and basically I just, you know, I just took loads of drugs and didn't go to any <laughs> lectures and, um, and, and you know, it was a complete waste of time. And, and the others were saying, why don't you come down and live in London and we'll really make this happen? Yeah. So I moved down to London. And what was the stretch before you started seeing success? So you sort of, you leave uni after a year. Yeah. You start hanging out with these guys who yeah. you've known from before, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. We yeah. grew up in the same small town and went to the same school. So, right. Yeah. So you're all part of that sort of community. Yeah. You come back, you join this group. Yeah. How long was the stretch between sort of you joining and success? <laughs> I'd love to say it was very short, but it wasn't. <laughs> it <laughs> I mean, I, I reckon. So I think I started singing in the band in like properly in about like 97, 98. And then, um, yeah, so we got our record deal in 2003. But okay. I moved to London in 2000. So it was three three years or so after that. That's a significant time, you know, where you're sort of grinding, yeah. gigging, yeah. not seeing sort of tangible success, maybe incremental or... Absolutely. I think the thing for us is that we weren't great musicians, you know, and, but that's one of the great things about 
pop or rock music yeah. is that you don't have to be a great musician you you know you can just find a way of getting the job done but i think if, if that is the case it can take you a bit longer <laughs> <laughs> um and so yeah in order you know um tim you know who who ended up writing most of the songs for keen he he i think it took him a while to f- you know figure out how you do it sure you know and it was a lot about kind of always you know editing and paring stuff down so it became more and more concise you know i think if you listen to early keen demos they're often like eight minutes long yeah you know, <laughs> sprawling guitar solos and, that's like any like filmmakers yeah. you'll see their for you know it's like everybody wants to do a three-hour cut or something yeah. or musicians the songs yeah. are so long it's like i think that's the thing you learn as you go along and become more pros it's like brevity can be better and yeah. more effective yeah absolutely um in that time though i mean was there ever a point where you go shit I got to get out of this band thing. Like nothing's happening. I got to make some money. Oh, I think there was, it was a constant fear for us that we were just idiots. You know, (laughs) this was never going to happen. And at that point there were four of us. So we had a guitarist and he left the band in 2001. And I think at that point it was like, is this really going to work? So we were just left with, at that point, bass, drums and voice. Um, and actually it was, a, it was a real stroke of luck in a way because Tim, who writes mainly on the piano, he said, oh, okay, maybe I should go to using the piano as my primary instrument. We'll just stick bass on a track, you know. And, uh, and then the c- kind of sound of Keen was born, this kind of piano-driven rock sound. Out of necessity. In Out of way. necessity, yeah. completely. Um, and, and then obviously coupled with Tim suddenly becoming much better at writing songs and, um, I guess my voice kind of coming into its own, you know, it was just the, all the right ingredients at the right time suddenly. Yeah. With, um, I mean, I guess jumping ahead to the wave, I guess from your perspective, what's the difference between, you know, writing and process with Keen and then on your own? Well, it's a, that's one of the things that was one of the main inspirations or draws, at least, for being a, to trying to strike out and do something on my own. The, the the creative process was really Tim's, and he and he kind of owned that. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, he wrote the songs. He would lock himself away. It wasn't a collaborative process in that respect. So he was, you know. It was very precious about that. Is that something, though, through the course of the record you do with Keen, that you tried to maybe shift or say, hey, I want more of a say, or were you just fine with the way it had always been? I think been? we were all okay with it, you know. I mean, that said, I think Keen was a strange environment. You know, it's, yeah, there were elements of it that worked incredibly well, but there were also other elements of it that were probably very unhealthy, and I think that might have been one of them. Um, that, yeah, I think Tim did, you know, cling on to that role fiercely. I think the thing was, though, that, um, you know, from, from my point of view um, and my own part in it, I didn't really have the the wherewithal and the motivation, uh, the dedication to actually contribute creatively during that those times. So I'm not saying it's his fault. I think it... You know, it, it was partly my fault too that I wasn't involved in that. Do you think in, in general that you, there's sort of like um, 
maybe your disposition is more passive or mm. can you, or, or could you be confrontational if you wanted to be? Oh, I think we were mostly very passive right. in, in Keen. I think that's, again, you know, it's, I think you need confrontation, you know, in life. Yeah, sure. <laughs> in order to get things done sometimes in order to resolve situations. But I think we're very kind of English about the whole thing a lot of the time and things would kind of fester away and never really be dealt with. I mean, there are things still that probably need dealing with, you know, if we go back to doing more music. So, um, so yes. So you moved to this record and then it's like, now you get a chance to sort of do all of these things that maybe you thought about. Yeah. But the thing was, I, I think it's about being in a position to access that you know, the, the creative stuff. I mean, you know, obviously I had a big problem with drug addiction and it ruined me and it got worse every time I went back to it. But it also then gave me this moment of clarity where I looked at my life and I thought, if I carry on, I will die. Uh, the other option is to do something different and to turn my life around. And actually what it forced me to do, and I'm quite grateful for this was to completely open up to well particularly one other human being I had a therapist who I had known and trusted uh, and I opened up to him and I revealed everything you know I've, I'm not sure there's a single thing I'm holding on to that I haven't talked about and we're talking like you know <laughs> those deep dark secret Absolutely. thoughts and things that we've all done you know all us humans but we're often very scared to hold on to sure there's or, like you know shame embarrassment whatever it is that the reason we don't yeah. share those things and it could be so cathartic to just say that shit out loud i couldn't believe it you know i said it i said these things out loud and i was terrified about what that was going to do and how yeah. he how, how is my therapist going to view me <laughs> after i tell him about this or that and of course you know the reality is the complete opposite it opens you up to your emotional world it allows you to live without a sense of kind of emotional baggage in your life um and to not be ashamed of being you know having bits of you you don't like or <laughs> bits of you that are wrong you know that's yeah. we're all like that as human beings you know it's just strange we're all desperate to try and carry around this idea that we're actually perfect and life is okay and we, we try to project that perfect. too yeah. which is bullshit you yeah, know absolutely and we're all projecting some fake version of our best self <laughs> i know and, and things like facebook and social media <laughs> make that even worse it's a kind of amplification of that. yeah it's a, it's a sickness i think so the thing was i think i suppose what i'm getting to is that i i you know i talked about all of that stuff and suddenly I had access to a part of me from which songs could come. Hmm. I mean, the other thing was, obviously, I had all these problems, you know, and my journey out of them that I could suddenly write about. So I suddenly had a lot of material as sure. well. Things to um, write about and then an openness yeah, to exactly. write about them. Exactly. And I think that combination is really where, what the, the wave was born out of. Wow. You know, you mentioned issues that you'd had with drugs. Do you think that that's something that without sort of the success and such an unconventional career and being in a sort of massive band, is that something that happens anyway? Say you're a banker or yeah. do you think that it's a function of such a sort of a unique lifestyle? I think it happens anyway. I'm absolutely convinced about that. You know, I think that for, for me, a drug addiction is it's using a substance to try and cope with a part of you that you're deeply unhappy with. And I think the roots of that normally at least go back a long way. I don't, you know, I think 
being in a band and it being successful, there are things about that that might accelerate a problem. Mm. Um, and in fact, you know, the reason you might want to go into being in a band might be partly due to your own insecurity. Sure, <laughs> as yeah. A person. You know, I, th- I, th- I do think that's true. I think one of the reasons I want to be, wanted to be a singer was actually, in reality, I felt incredibly self-conscious and unhappy with who I was. But I thought, if I can be the singer at, a fr- at the front of a band, maybe people will think I'm okay. Mm. You know, this idea of kind of hiding in plain sight. Of course, what I wasn't prepared for was it suddenly became massively successful and I was suddenly <laughs> under even more scrutiny and yeah. felt even more self-conscious. So it was a horrible recipe for disaster. But, yeah, in, in answer to your question, I, I do think, you know, had I been something else, it might not have been cocaine that was my problem, you know, because it's an expensive drug, but <laughs> it, I would, I'm sure it would have been alcohol or something would have... Hit the pub every night and just yeah. spending too much time, all of that. Yeah, I think it's, it's quite likely um, because I think my problems particularly went back to childhood and to my teenagers, you know, and, I, and, I, and there was a lot of stuff there that I had really never, you know, dealt with, and sure. not until recently anyway. Um, you know, you mentioned sort of hiding in plain sight, the scrutiny of being, you know, the front man of a wildly successful band. I think that, you know, it seems like the press in the UK is sort of this legendary thing. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you you guys have benefited from it. You've benefited from it. But I'm sure there's times where it hasn't been so kind. Is that something that, like, you've ever paid attention to? Is it something that you read or don't read or? Um, Well, yeah, it is. And it's really hurt me in the past. I think they, you know, there's, um, it's funny. I was thinking back to the very early days of Keen. You know, the enemy is a great example you know of a magazine that kind of determines whether something's cool or not yeah it's hot or not (laughs) sliding scale yeah and you know if 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 they're on side they're a great ally and if they're not certainly at least 10 years ago this is maybe less true now but they you know they 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 could definitely they they were a big ally or a big enemy and it always felt like like that and what I found really fascinating was in the very early days of Keen, before we'd become successful, but we had a single out on an independent record label uh, and we were just gigging around the country and we were just, just, you know, quite an interesting indie rock band. The Enemy loved us. Sure. They really loved us. And, you know, they I remember them reviewing the single that we'd released on this independent label, you know, five out of five, great stuff, you know, weird and brilliance you know and then we got a record deal and we re-released that song you know uh maybe of six months later we re-released it same song same production and they they absolutely panned it because they by that point we'd become too successful it had shifted for <laughs> too them mainstream you know so there's definitely yeah so i suppose what i'm saying is there's a fickle quality they you know and i think the british press in general love to build someone up, to knock them down. And, you know, my opinion of that is that it's, you know, it's probably for the most part people, you know, working at newspapers or the country in general projects its own kind of uh, repressed hate of itself into other, you know, into celebrities' lives. You know, so we, we can build them up, then we can knock them down and we'll show them. But actually, you know, it's something to do with a very kind of broken part of 
you know, British, the British psyche. Where they're at. And it's cathartic to knock down someone that's successful. Absolutely. Because then maybe it's like, ah, you know, f them. Yeah, absolutely. And it does feel good on some level, <laughs> but it's interesting to talk to somebody who's yeah. been the subject of that because that's, yeah. it's rare to be on the other side of that. Whereas it's like, you know, yeah, <laughs> it is an interesting thing. Yeah. Knowing that though, like intellectually you go, I get, this is what's going on. This is sort of how it works. <laughs> How, do you still let it affect you? Well, I have really had to kind of steel myself ready for this yeah. moment because I was aware that I was taking quite a big risk writing about addiction. Oh, yeah, you know, here's another kind of musician, too much money, he's got himself in trouble. That was my fear. And f funnily enough, something... Uh, my therapist said to me, which I thought was a brilliant point. He said this a few months ago before the record came out. He said, you have to have a very thin skin to make a record and then a very thick skin to take it out there into the big wide world. And you've got to make that transition almost overnight. And I really understand what he's, he's saying. It's like, you, you know, obviously you have to be so in touch with yourself as a person to write authentic music it takes a vulnerability yeah absolutely you have to lay yourself bare but then when you take it out into the big wide world particularly with social media you know timelines full of vitriol and people's opinions absolutely it's a very scary place you know and and you have to be bulletproof for it, that kind of stuff. And it's almost a different person. It's a yeah. weird thing that you can be the sort of person that can create something so vulnerable. Yeah. But then you're supposed to be this other person that's just like, yeah, that's my shit. Like, enjoy <laughs> yeah. it. And I don't care what you say. It's like, yeah. how can you be both those people? It's very, it's very difficult. It's a very hard thing to do. And, yeah, I knew that I was kind of setting myself up big time for, for as I say, the kind of cynical view of my story. But actually... It's funny, I think the landscape has changed quite a lot in the last 10 or 15 years in the UK. I think the press the press has had to change its attitude because we've had a big inquiry, the Leveson inquiry, which, you know, really took them to task on some of the kind of practices that they'd used over the years. Was like this the phone hacking? Phone hacking, yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. Absolutely. Just kind of general intrusion. The paparazzi, you know, you can basically order them to stay away. Um you know, and so so the, there are de there are definitely changes in that respect. There's also change in terms of, uh, you know, mental health and how mental health is being viewed in the UK. I don't know whether it's the same here. Absolutely, there's a huge yeah. initiative. Like I think in North America, specifically, yeah. like in Canada too, there's definitely a, a, a stronger need to understand why people yeah. are going through their issues yeah. and have empathy as opposed to having a stigma around somebody needing to talk to somebody like a therapist. Like yeah, absolutely. You know, and in fact, you know, we all look after. Well, we all tr not. There's a big emphasis, at least, on looking after yourself physically. You know got to go to the gym and got to eat healthily and all of these things. And yes, those things are important, but nothing is as important as how you feel about yourself and your life, you know. And actually, you know, I do think it's strange that we're, we're so resistant to, you know, a high street therapist or, you know, mm, yeah. of, or at least even just talking openly to each other about what's going on, particularly men, but, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely men and women, but... It, you know, that idea of, um, you know, if I share some something that I feel ashamed of particularly, then how are people going to view me? It's the fear of judgment. Yeah. You know, and it's sort of debilitating. And actually, the truth is, you know, if, for example, my wife or friend or whoever it is feels something really deeply sad or painful and they share it with me, I there's... 
there's never a time in my life where I feel more connected to that person. Like in happiness, it's fine. You're just happy. It's quite isolated happiness. It's like, well, I feel happy. You know, you might be in a group of people, you're all laughing and joking around. But it's it's not as to me. It doesn't seem as as deep an experience as when someone breaks down with you. It's so affecting, you know, and so powerful, and it makes you feel alive as a human being when someone connects with you in that way. I think you're learning. They say like you don't you don't really find out who people are when things are going well. It's like you find out who people are when things aren't going well. Yeah, absolutely. That's who you are really when it's at its worst. You know. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I guess lastly, uh, you know, you have the solo record. Mm. Are you someone that sort of thinks a lot about the future, meaning like, this is my plan for a decade from now? <laughs> Are you a planner? Are you on to the no, next? I'm not a planner. You know, I think, no, I'm not really a planner. Um, and I think the more, you know, I, I've watched these, I occasionally watch these property shows at home, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Where yeah. people say, you know, they've got a kind of five-year plan. They're these young couples, they've got a five-year plan and they've got everything mapped out. And it, I look at that and I think that is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, no, why I, would you I, want to map it all out? You know, um, yeah, I can understand there are considerations and whatever that you need to make for the for the future. But but as a general rule, I think life is much better and more enjoyable when you are more just just when you are open to what might come in. And that's been my experience of the last couple of years. Is that. I feel like I have this openness and I'm not going into things kind of cynically, which is what the way I used to be. And I'm not going into it thinking, when can I get this done with so I can go on holiday or, you know, I'm thinking, right, what, what's this situation or what's, you know, working with this person going to offer me and, and how can I, you know, how will I enjoy it? I mean, and it doesn't always happen, but generally I think having that attitude has been really healthy. So the only plan I've got for the future is I want to work with lots of different people in different genres and find out where I'm going next um, by doing that. And, you know, I... But, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty loose plan, if it's a plan at all. But it sounds like you're going into it positively and open to whatever yeah, comes absolutely. your way. Thanks so much for your time, man. Oh, it was a real pleasure. All right, appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> Welcome to The Dessert, where we welcome our great friend and pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham, on to talk about maybe something uh, happening uh, in pop culture, music, movies. <laughs> How was Hawaii, Mike? It was awesome. Good. Uh, you're back. I missed you. The oh, band's I wanted back to together. say that. We got the whole band back together. So, um, so what did you ask? Oh, movies? Because I want... <laughs> this is the... What I wanted it to be was the Oscar episode. Ooh, Timely. And while you were, because the Oscars are this Sunday at the time of this recording. That's true. So I wanted to see all of the films while you were gone in Hawaii and have you be very proud of me that I did so much practice work. <laughs> but Mike's and, like, a and I, figure. like I saw, I saw, no, we ended on kind of a, a bad note, maybe oh, some yeah. might think after last episode, but <laughs> after Mike's, you know, you, you miss a brother when he's gone. You kind of hate a brother when he's around. <laughs> Especially me. <laughs> but, um, I was thinking like I don't I don't like reviews when they're so redundant. Like um, I saw La La Land, mm-hmm. and I, I I thought it would be very interesting if because uh, sometimes people accuse me of having a contrarian opinion mm-hmm. on a, something popular, but I really loved La La Land, and I don't think there's anything interesting about that to 
add to the 15 Oscar nominations or whatever it has, <laughs> like a glowing review. Like, yeah. I don't really think that's what I'm about. And then I tried seeing... Uh, Sorry, first though, but the reason you even say that is because there's sort of a subsection of people. There's a backlash against La La Land right now. I think it's a vocal minority and people are just doing that to kind of... Be contrarians. Exactly. Like a lot of people are... Not a lot. I saw this one girl who kind of was irking me online. She was like, <laughs> I haven't even seen La La Land and I already know I hate it. And, you know, I, that stuff bothers me. And so that it's kind of a hack opinion, in my humble opinion, to say you don't like something before... Before you've seen it gotcha. I, I don't like people like that people's opinions like that <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify so then i saw a movie called patterson with adam driver oh, yeah. yeah it's a jim jarmusch film and i was like oh i could i bet you a lot of people do not like this film which was oscar nominated and i'm going to tell everyone i do like it which i which i did i thought it was a great film problem is it turns out that film was not nominated for any oscars <laughs> <laughs> so then i got thinking about it and I was like, let's not talk about the things that everyone's already seen. Because I feel like this year, more than most, people have seen. Yeah, I've seen like eight of the nine movies. I haven't seen. And that's a bad sign when Max has seen eight of the nine <laughs> movies and I've only seen like one or two. <laughs> uh, so I wanted, well, I wasn't even intending to talk about this, but we just came out of a sales meeting. <laughs> we literally, where they were talking about products. Yeah. And I just, um, I've been in kind of bad health lately like um mm. do you guys ever get your uh, butts checked out like maybe by ladies when i'm walking yeah, that was the perfect set <laughs> i was just watching mike's like the little hamster on the wheel go it was going very slow today i was like i think someone's waiting for me was that a setup I was like this would be a good setup <laughs> you mean like our like our like a like a like our butts like the inside of the the asshole like no. i always feel like i have to shit lately okay and it it, it sounds like kind of a funny problem <laughs> It's one of the most. Mike just looked at producer Max going, yeah, "Is this usable? Yeah, where are we going with this?" It's one of the most, like, uh, anxiety-inducing things. Imagine you always felt like you, like, um, you know, when you do the first plop and then the second plop's coming. It always feels like the second plop is about to come. But I'm completely empty. You're always in anticipation. You always right. have the feeling like you need to go to the bathroom, but nothing comes. Exactly. And it's, it, it, it is, anytime you talk about something like this, it's kind of humorous, like, haha, Shane's talking about poopy, but it actually is driving me crazy. When did and it start? It started the day, like, Mike left pretty much. And I don't know if it was like, I miss Mikey, <laughs> <You're related. laughs> I'm going to shit myself. <laughs> but I, I remember on Howard- Wait a second, I've been gone for 10 days. I know. And it's been 10 days of hell, Mike. Oh my goodness. I feel better just because sales was talking about talking about products that you- want to endorse right like what how can we get more sponsors and i remember <laughs> years of listening to howard stern he would always talk about squatty potty and it's like um people don't know like in western culture we don't shit the way you're supposed to shit you're actually supposed to squat when you poop because it creates the better angle where you're you're not obstructed like For your intestines yeah your shit gets a clean like thump, and right now it's kind of like and it goes through this awkward path okay so i'll show you the product shane is going into his bag so <laughs> describe it mike oh my goodness it's called squatty potty it's actually branded at the bottom here i maybe i shouldn't touch it but yeah this is uh <laughs> this is a 30 million dollar like in sales company just last year <laughs> like it's huge like howard stern loves this so i was like okay if it's being so endorsed it's a portable thingy oh so goodness. i bring this around to oh my goodness i'm gonna take a photo of this so we can show people uh so you put this 
So when I'm shitting, I carry this around. <laughs> and then when I go to the toilet, I put this under the toilet bowl. And oh, I, it's for your feet. Oh, for I thought your it was for your butt. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can um, squat. And this is like the beginner model, but it comes with one that's a few oh, inches. You're potty training. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I found it has improved my uh, shits. So, yeah. so for our listeners, essentially, it's kind of like a footstool that he puts in front of the toilet. He puts his feet up on it. It's about a foot off the ground, which kind of brings his knees up toward his chin or his chest. And I guess that's a more conducive uh, way to get the feces through your intestine. Honestly, everyone, I'm serious here. Look it up. It's scientifically proven. It's been on Dr. Oz. There's amazing promos. Oh, Dr. Oz. He's legit. (laughs) (laughs) You don't get to be the number one TV doctor if you're not legit. Yeah, Dr. Phil Phil. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for stepping on my joke, Mike. (laughs) I can set myself up, too. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, that, that is not even what I intended to come here and talk about. But I thought... I actually endorse Squatty Potty, and it's it is talked about on podcasts. So hey, let's get Squatty Potty on board. I'm a legit, you know, bowel problem person. Now, do you talk to your wife Alex about these problems? Yeah, she loves the Squatty Potty. <laughs> <laughs> I because I got so one. Not like I got awful. one for home. This is the travel version. Okay. So and there's one that comes in like this nice teak wood, and uh, my <laughs> wife's birthday is right around the corner. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm thinking of getting it for her. That's great. Anyway, that's not what I wanted to talk about. What I wanted to talk about was great programs that people are missing out, especially if you're a male. And you can cut this part out because maybe the the toilet stuff is no. Enough. I thought that the squatty party was a perfect segment. To, <laughs> we'll put I'm the poop culture aficionado. Of episode. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll Just be like you know this is wait. for a, a mature audience. Max, did you it? miss my line? I said I'm the poop culture aficionado. Oh, very good. Okay, that was good. <laughs> Thanks. Like All right. So what's the segue here? It, there is none. There's no salvaging that. But so when I, I actually got this idea from you, Max, because I was going through um, Instagram stories and you do a ton, right? So normally I don't have the volume up, but I uh, I decided to turn the volume on because I noticed you were watching The Bachelor. Oh, yeah. And you were just like laughing your ass off, having a great time. You knew the characters' names. You had like a... Like this girl's uh, incorrigible. Yeah. In, like to say like incorrigible, I think. Or I something. was going to say incredible, but whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah. Whatever. But, Bad pun. And you were watching it the way I watched The Bachelor. Uh-huh. I must say The Bachelor is one of the best shows on TV. It's incredible. Okay. I only got into it in like three weeks ago because Lauren has just gotten into it. Mm-hmm. And she you watch an episode and then I was sort of, I was drawn in immediately and then I was away on tour and she, and she made me watch the one that we, I was missing. And then on Monday we watched the one together. So it's like a thing we have together. And my sister and I, it turns out my sister watches it. It turns out everybody watches it. I feel like it's the one nonpartisan thing in America. <laughs> and like, I, it I feel- literally <laughs> brings together everybody from every corner of the continent. And I feel like we're at a point now where like guys don't need to be embarrassed to admit they watch it. Like, or we're, headed that way oh, because yeah. honestly if you're a guy listening watch the bachelor your your girlfriend or your tinder date will love you we'll they'll love find you. it so endearing you'll have such a great time it's such a cheap date and you get to do a running it's one of those shows where you have a license to do a running commentary throughout oh it's incredible yeah, you it's can just, just be so talking fun. the whole time yeah and they just recently made history i'm not sure if you know this mm-hmm. but uh the first, oh, I do know this. Yeah, the first black bachelorette is coming out from yeah, the Rachel. show. Yeah, yeah, is that her name? Yeah, I think it's Rachel. Rachel. Yeah. yeah, which is kind of funny because it's obviously letting people know that Rachel's not going to win. Yeah, everyone's really confused with why they 
announced that before the show was even. I made. know why they did it. This is speculation, but <laughs> I know why. Pull up, your, pull up your squatty potty and have a listen. <laughs> this it's because uh, I feel like a lot a large section of the black community feels like they're not represented on the show, which yeah. historically they only have one token black person show yeah. up, and they always get booted off first. Mm -hmm. This year they they made a real effort to have uh, like I think there was four or five black girls. Oh yeah, and one's actually making it to the final four right now. The reason to announce that she's going to be the next Bachelorette uh. is to garner excitement from the black community, so they can come over, watch these episodes to get to know her a little bit. So when the actual Bachelorette happens, they kind of have a little bit of her backstory. So it's actually a really clever way to engage an audience that maybe isn't watching. Exactly. So I think the. The, fir the first black Bachelorette, which is the first time they've ever had a black, uh, this show's been for like 18 seasons or something like that. The first time they've ever had a, a black contestant. It's going to do gangbusters. I'm just curious. I wonder if they're going to do an all black uh, contestant pool or 50-50. No, it'll be like normal. I, don't, I, I no. bet you it'll be like... But this is your first season watching, Max. You don't know the history of how <laughs> the, the black people have not been represented at all. This is the sure. most they ever have. If I'm a producer of the show, I just go by the demographics of the country. I'd say, okay, the, the country is 17% Hispanic, so we try to get that percentage in. It's 12% black. It's 2% Asian. That, that, right. That, okay. That's what I would do. That, that's sort of the foolproof version, I think. Uh, that's an interesting question, though. So if you're the bachelor or the bachelorette and you have a certain preference, do you talk about your aesthetic preferences before you go on the show? There's probably some planning with, with, yeah. with, with the producers. It's so calculated. They just get basically the hottest people possible. The hottest person usually wins. Minus Nick, who has some very odd tastes, I find. <laughs> he let go of half the model chicks in the first. Like, I love Nick, though, as a contestant. Yeah. He's kind of the perfect bachelor. Yeah. Right. Well, like, do you know his history that he's yeah, actually yeah. okay? Yeah, that he, he was he was left at the altar twice or something. Yes, yeah. and then he went on Bachelor in Paradise, which yeah. is pretty much just like a f fest. <laughs> and he became he was kind of a villain. Yeah, before. And then he became the good guy in Bachelor in the Paradise. You haven't paying attention. I like yeah. that. See, yeah, this yeah, is good. Now super, we can talk more. I'm Max. super into it. <laughs> you guys have found something finally. <laughs> who do you? I know who you want to win this season. Um. Well. Well, who do you think it would be? Oh, well, oh actually, you probably are in love with Corinne, though, and some like endearing. No, you. Corinne's no? like the most obnoxious person on the show and okay. so hateable, but amazing. She's like the perfect villain. She's the villain on the show. She's the lovable villain. At first, she was the villain. Now, every girl loves her. Uh huh. Because she's real. You know, she has that like Trump thing. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> like, which when you're not the president, it's kind of like cool. It's like, this person's real. This person's real. The um, Vanessa, the Montreal chick. Yeah. Her family was way too intense for Nick. Nick's oh, like, I'm getting the hell out of here's here. Here's the thing. She's going to win. No. Okay. Corinne, Corinne's not going to win. Rachel, we already know, isn't going to win. No. And you think Raven? Like, no offense to Raven. Raven Raven's a sweet girl. <laughs> she's just not hot enough. Yeah, but... Historically, this show does not let anyone who's not a 10 win. No, here, here's my... This is what I think is happening. Sorry for Mike listening to this conversation. She's like, I do Mike not Mike has care. left. <laughs> um, is that Nick has probably realized, man, I did not eliminate people correctly. The final four contestants, like, I, like. Oh, he's stuck with a he's bad bracket. Stuck with a, yeah, because it's like, Rachel's the by far the most impressive, but he, he was getting really grilled on the race thing. And he probably, I don't think he's the type of person to be like, this is going to be the rest of my life. No. He does not strike me as that kind of guy. With uh, Vanessa, her family was way too intense and, like, was really grilling him. 
Corinne was just like a hilarious, like Florida rich family. It, that was like the whole thing. That's a doing. dream family. Like she bought Nick. It's a not a dream $4, family though, because he's outfit. like just smart enough to like not want. But hold on. And then Raven, you're right. Too much of a country bumpkin. I don't mm-hmm. think he wants to go spend his time in Arkansas. So yeah. I think he goes with Corinne, and they never get married. I think it like the, like I think he ends up with Corinne, but then when he calls off the the wedding. No one's mad about it. Corinne's not even yeah. mad about it. What do you think of Max? You just said that someone else would win. I, I, I know this show inside and out, and I know you've probably been watching oh, it. Oh, this is going to be so good. Now we're going to have a definitive answer <laughs> to... I, I just know Vanessa's going to win. You can tell that historically they never pick people under 25. It's always the person 27-ish. She's got her shit together. Her family's a little cuckoo, but they all are. Yeah, that's true. He's going to just deal with it. And yeah, they ultimately all dissolve their marriages anyway. So that's, it doesn't matter who you're going to dissolve it with. The winners <laughs> typically don't yeah. actually get married. Now, does he sleep with the final four? Do they all they, have... They have a thing where they go in a fantasy suite, which basically is like the f- room or the boom, boom room. And uh, yeah, they, they they just go in there and they like, do it. Is this it. something that nobody ever talks about? No, 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 it's a known thing. But I mean, I mean, like they talk about like, oh, did you sleep with that girl? Did you sleep with that girl? Or they just, is it like in play it, company? It causes high drama. And sometimes uh, people will try to have sexual relations before it's fantasy sweet time. And that was uh, Corinne's move. Corinne. So- Corinne, yeah. Like, Mike, I, I had no interest in reality television up to this point, but literally, like, now I'm hooked. And I totally get it. I totally get it. And also, like, um, Simmons was on, on the Ringers podcast. He, he was just on Julia Lettman. Oh, Lettman I show. get it. I know this is, like, a huge popular phenomenon. Uh, I've only ever seen maybe two minutes in total of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. Uh, I'm just interested in the mechanics of it. And more so, if you were The Bachelor, how do you think you would play it, Max? Oh, well, I'm not Nick, though. So if it were up to me, I'd go. No, no, I mean, just in general. Say you're on that show. Oh, I could, but here's the thing. I could never imagine. Do you think I'd subject my family to be on that show? <laughs> of course not. That'd be crazy. And like, I was talking to Lauren about this, too. It's like, can you imagine, like, you know, you bring home some random dude to meet Brent Bentham? Like, no, of course not. Like, yeah. I think you have to be a certain type of person looking for a certain type of thing to be on that show. Shane, would you go on The Bachelor? Well, of course. (laughs) But here's the thing. Remember when we started the pod and I was like really obsessed with Tinder? I felt like that was a real life version of The Bachelor. And I thought this is the greatest invention. You have like 20 girls. And in my mind, they're all vying for my attention. And I'm just the one guy. And I get to pick who I go on the date with. And then I'm weaning it, weaning it down. And then in the end, I got a bride out of it. You know what I mean? I thought you did real life Bachelor. I felt like that. And it was so exhilarating. (laughs) And it would be, I talked to this about my wife all the time. I was like, would you let me go on The Bachelor? And she always says, hell no. But we always think it would be a fun, would be so fun. And they never have a guy who's funny on The Bachelor ever. Oh, yeah. yeah, And I would love to be the first funny Bachelor. Because I, I, don't, I don't really think it works if you're a funny guy because you need to take it so seriously. You need to t- yeah, take the whole thing seriously. Yeah, like is there, any, is there a sense of irony or the fact no, that this is all there, like – There's a, not. It's there's like, an it, artifice to the whole well, – No, it, it's real. But these people are really lacking a chromosome when it comes to like 
how life is, you know, and like just, and irony and sense of humor. Exactly. That's what I mean. Like yeah. they, they don't have the full package. They're missing that one thing, which is hilarious as a viewer because you get to mock them the entire time. Totally. So, so Nick will say to the camera like four times in the span of 20 minutes about four different girls. He'll say, you know, she's just an incredible girl. I feel like this connection we have is so strong. You know, I can see ourselves in the future together. And then like five minutes later, he'll say the same thing. And so anyway, on these hometown dates, he, he meets each one of their families. And then he, the fourth one is this Montreal Italian family and on each one up to this point he's asked for permission to marry the daughter and each father's like well you know I know things are going pretty quick but I trust my daughter and you know you have my blessings <laughs> right and then he gets to the Montreal father he, and the Montreal father like kind of clues in he's like have you had this conversation with three other people up to this point <laughs> it was so uncomfortable and he's and Nick couldn't lie he's like I have. <laughs> it was well, and the, the best too is the girls always have to say, uh, well, at a certain point, they have to say, I love you. Yeah. But the guy, like for ratings purposes, he can't be like, I love you too. He, so so he just starts making out with them. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I love you. Awkward pause goes in for the 10 second makeout. Yeah. And I always find that the funniest oh, it's part. Incredible. Also, Do my, you think that the producers are telling him not to say I love of you? Of course. This is a very like producers have a huge hand have in it. Huge and in it. fact, even the people who get sent home, the producers pick. This isn't the bachelor doesn't choose who doesn't get the roses. He only gets to choose what in the final four? He gets to choose who he thinks is going to stay. Yeah, the top four pretty much. But they'll <laughs> keep an exciting person who's good for ratings, who's a complete nut job. So it sounds like this is this Corinne girl. Is yeah. that oh, this is my no, favorite. Corinne is super hot and easy and fun. <laughs> okay, to get along with. So Nick, <laughs> Nick will be talking to the camera about like each one of these girls and what makes them special, and he'd be like, and like uh, Rachel, uh, her dad's a judge. She's a lawyer. She's so smart. She's like by far the most put together person on the show. And like each one, he could say something really nice and flattering. Like the Montreal girl, she works with special needs kids, and then Corinne is literally a twenty four year old with a nanny. She like literally will go to the mall and drop like $5,000 on a sweater. Like she's like totally like South Florida, completely out, out to lunch. And when he talks about Corinne, like he can't wipe the smile off his face because she's just a hot blonde. And so he's been saying the nicest things about the other people. And he's like, but he just can't hide yeah. anything. He's like, Corinne, uh, she, she's uh, she, she's got some spunk to her. Yeah. A lot of sexual chemistry between us. Yeah. Is that what he said? Yeah. They say that a lot. And Max, you're choosing her to, to win. Only because I think he, he painted himself into a corner and th it'll be the most easy one to get out of the relationship. With. And, and Shane, who do you pick? Uh, Vanessa. Vanessa. And who I very much dislike. No, she is Shane's nightmare. Lauren was saying right from the beginning, she's like pulling tantrums whenever like Corinne was doing anything. Oh my God. It annoys me so much. She's a nightmare. I know this has gotten long in the tooth, but I want to say The Bachelor is <laughs> a good introductory show. The actual best reality show on TV is Vanderpump Rules. I'm telling you, that's the real crown jewel in exciting reality TV shows. And then there's another one called Are You the One? That's my third favorite. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where they get 20 people and they try to find their perfect match. It's an MTV show, but... I think yeah. you have maybe for the first time and most successfully fulfilled your role as the pop culture aficionado. This is, I know, that's what I mean. I think if the opinion is so popular... I, sh I should only introduce people to exciting things that they're not watching, not something that they already are. And I'm giving a redundant opinion that's been out there. Hey, what do you think about doing like a bachelor recap? Like uh, maybe we get Alex and Lauren on the close next mm -hmm. week or something like that. Special. When's the finale? Well, there's an, there, well, there's a twist at the end of this past week, which I will not talk about because you haven't seen it yet, right? I've seen it. Oh yeah, you did see it. Yeah. Uh, and so, but let's talk about, let's talk about What was the week. twist? 
when Andy showed up. Oh, you didn't see that a mile away, Max? No, I'm oh, new to the show. Total newbie. That's it. That's all. That's our episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, the Mike on Much uh, podcast is produced by me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm your host, Mike Veerman. Uh, um, add us on Instagram and Twitter, Mike on Much. Please subscribe to the show. Tell your friends about the show. Leave a comment in the ratings. It all helps a big deal. See you next week. We don't die on the weekend. Later.